Welcome to AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. My guest today is Father Mario Powell, a Jesuit priest and the president of Brooklyn Jesuit Prep, which is a middle school serving low-income families of diverse races, ethnicities, and faiths in New York City. Last week, Father Mario wrote a piece for America, the Jesuit Review, headlined, How Long, O Lord? Psalm 13 is the Cry of Black Americans. Father Mario and I use that piece as a jumping-off point to discuss the police killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the enduring sin of racism in America. Father Mario is 38 years old and one of the youngest black Jesuit priests in the country, and he brings a vital perspective to this time of anguish and protest. Thanks for joining us. Well, Father Mario Powell, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Thank you for, uh, thank you for having me on today. So b- before we get started, and again, invited you on for some reflection uh, on the, the murder of George Floyd and then the, the protests that have followed throughout the country and around the world, really. Um, before we jump into that, why don't uh, we start maybe by you telling me a little bit about yourself, your background, uh, and how you came to the Jesuits and what you're doing now. Absolutely. So I, I am a, a Jesuit priest of the Northeast uh, province, and uh, I'm not from the Northeast. I was actually born uh, in the South in Arkansas and grew up out West and Hawaii and California and uh, went to a Jesuit high school in Los Angeles, Loyola High School. And uh, it was there that the Jesuits uh, got their uh, tentacles in me. And I've been Jesuit educated ever since. I, I went to Boston College and then entered the Jesuits uh, after uh, I finished my undergraduate degree uh, at Boston College. Uh, and I was really attracted to the Jesuits in part because of, you know, it, these are some of the, uh, the smartest, strangest men I'd ever met uh, when I was in high school. Uh, they were, you know, one's a Renaissance men, and then at, at other times they were just uh, uniquely, I would say, peculiar. Uh, and uh, that's always been uh, something that has uh, attracted me uh, to, to Jesuits and, and to the Society of Jesus. So you're now the, the president of Brooklyn Jesuit Prep. Could you tell me a little bit about that school and, and what your ministry is like there? Yeah, so I've been president here at Brooklyn Jesuit Prep for uh, a little under a year. I began in July of 2019. I, I was at uh, Regis High School in Manhattan. And one of the things that attracted me to, uh, to saying yes and, and, and coming across the East River to, to Brooklyn was, uh, you know, the population that uh, Brooklyn uh, Jesuit Prep serves is a, you know, it's a low income population and it is a minority population. Uh, we are almost entirely black. Uh, we do have uh, a, a few uh, Latino students uh, uh, with us, but we are a reflection of, uh, of, uh, of the borough and of the, of the neighborhood. You know, our average, the average family income of, uh, of students here, or I should say we, we really are targeting families that are earning um, below uh, $35,000 uh, a year. Um, and as you know, in New York, that uh, that doesn't really take you very far. And so we our, our mission, I think, is 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 compelling. Um, we offer families in central Brooklyn uh, another option for a faith based education that is, uh, you know, an extended school day, a summer program and 
uh, and teachers who, who buy into the mission and who care about their sons and daughters. And uh, the mission for me is what is was compelling and is compelling. And and I it is the job of my life being uh, being president here of, of Brooklyn Jesuit Prep. So the school, it's part of a network, right? A kind of a Jesuit sponsored network of, sec, uh, you know, kind of pre-secondary schools that's kind of risen up in, in the past handful of years. For folks who might not be familiar, uh, what are, again, these these schools, uh, the nativity schools, uh, kind of what you describe sort of the, the mission. But um, yeah, for folks who aren't as familiar, uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so we're part, we're a nativity school and and we were part, uh, we're actually kind of the, the uh, I would say the, the, the spawn of the original uh, nativity mission, which was in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And that school was originally founded to serve, uh, was to serve low income. Uh, you know, the Lower East Side of Manhattan was largely Puerto Rican and uh, uh, low income students who were simply not making it in, uh, in public schools or traditional Catholic schools and and these schools really rose out of a recognition that you can't just educate the mind uh, but you have to also take care of other aspects of a student's life that are just as important reasons as to why they are failing in school and so that is you know you have an extended school day in part because that way you can ensure that they're eating breakfast, lunch, and sometimes you're providing, you're providing dinner. You have an extended school day, so you can make sure that parents get home from, from work in time for you know, their son and daughter to uh, uh, be able to walk through the doors of their apartment uh, and it not be uh, empty. Uh, you, have, you, know, you have programming for, for parents uh, and helping, you know, helping to form parents, whether that's in financial literacy or you know, here at Brooklyn Desert Prep, we bring, in, we bring in dentists to ensure our students have access to, uh, to uh, dental health. We, we think all of these aspects of a student's life from, from healthcare to financial literacy to quite frankly, keeping them off the streets, all of that plays into uh, their education and academic success. Um, and so we certainly push them on an academic side of things, but we also take care of all other, all these other aspects that we think are extremely important um, for them to ultimately uh, thrive. And so we, uh, this, this model, the model works, and uh, but the model is, uh, to say the least, the model is, uh, it, it is not for the faint of heart. Uh, we are, uh, we work our, our faculty uh, hard and we work our students hard, but we, we, we love and care for them. And, and that model is just in, a, in recognition that our students need more than just an academic challenge. Sure. So I imagine for you as the president, if this were a more typical school year, if something like this had happened with the the killing of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, the uh, these big news stories, you would be in person with the with students and families and being there and having conversations, kind of hearing. But of course, we the schools have been closed uh, because of the COVID pandemic. So, what has the response been like for you? You know, in these weeks with your your school community, how have you been able to be in touch with them? 
Mike, you're, you're exactly right. You know, we have, we normally would, we address all sorts of issues in our, in our morning assemblies uh, with our students. You know, I have a fantastic principal, uh, Greg Artie, who, who really uh, does, I think, a really great job of making sure that we're engaging in the social issues of our time and not just ignoring them. And, and engaging with them using the uh, tools that we have, which is, you know, our Ignatian tradition and, and introducing that and engaging with, with our students. You know, we're not able to do that as easily with uh, COVID-19 uh, forcing our, our students to be uh, away physically uh, from us. But that's not stopping us from engaging with our students and our parents. You know, we, we've sent out a, uh, a, a uh, a letter to our, our our parents that was was mainly acknowledging all of what you you just talked about with you know George George Floyd Ahmaud Arbery Breonna Taylor uh, but it was also trying to give them resources uh, for you know an outlet of you know what do you do in this time other than just being frustrated uh, and so we sent that along as well but. We've also have planned for uh, tomorrow our end of the week assembly uh, with our students. Um, there was a desire from our students to want to do something. And we, we've asked our students uh, that to be prudent in terms of listening to their parents and, and taking part in, in, in protests uh, uh, here in Brooklyn. But we also didn't want to, we wanted to encourage them to uh, to take their frustration and do something with it, be constructive with it. And so uh, tomorrow we have planned uh, via Zoom, uh, we have our own uh, uh, protest plan that we are, uh, our students are going to be what uh, uh, they've made, uh, they've made signs um, and they're going to be able to, to talk about uh, what is it that is on their hearts right now? And so we, we, we've tried in, in, in somewhat creative ways to, uh, to encourage them to be advocates, uh, but also encourage them that, you know, part of a great American tradition is to, is to get out there and protest. And, and we want them to be able to do that as, as safely uh, as, as they can. Sure. So um, I, I reached out to you to, to ask you on to the show because I had seen a, a statement you had written and posted on the, the Brooklyn Jesuit Prep Facebook page. That statement then kind of grew into a piece for America magazine uh, that, that came out uh, last week when this will be aired. Uh, will have been a week uh, after your piece came out. Um, and it's titled, How Long, O Lord? Psalm 13 is the cry of black Americans. So for you writing as a, a black Jesuit, uh, kind of reflecting on this time, and I thought the piece was just very powerful and uh, seen again being shared around Catholic social media. So I thought what we could do is maybe to, to frame our conversation is to I'll invite you to kind of read some pieces of that and we'll be sure to link to it uh, in the, the show notes for folks. But uh, if you could read a few parts and then after kind of in between parts, we'll use that as a, a jumping off point. So so maybe if you're willing to, to start right from the, the beginning of your piece and, and read the, the first bit there. Sure, Mike. How long, O Lord, when injustice prevails that the poor are ground into despair? George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Oscar Grant. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Eric Garner. Trayvon Martin, 
Tamir Rice, Emmett Till. These are names we know, and these are the words of Psalm 13. After the death of yet another black man, they are my words as well. The psalmist is angry, questioning why God has not acted. Yet in days of old, the stench of sin filled nostrils of God. God smelled it, tasted it. As of old, it is again today. As a 38-year-old black Jesuit priest, this is a familiar smell for me. It stinks. Its smell and reactions it provides, provokes in black Americans is impossible to avoid. It is a strange and bitter fruit. Uh, thank you, Father Mario. Uh, so in, in your reflections as you sat down uh, for to write this, um, where did Psalm 13 come from? Why was that something that uh, resonated with you from, from the beginning? You know, Mike, in part it came from the my inability to put some words to my initial uh, my initial reaction to watching the video of George Floyd. I, I just felt I felt paralyzed and I also felt like I didn't have I didn't have any words of my own. Uh, when I first watched that video, uh, to be honest, I hadn't intended on watching that video. I was, I was, I was on Twitter and I came across it. I, I hadn't, I hadn't seen the news all day, and I clicked on it, not expecting to watch what I had watched. And and for me, I I turned immediately to scripture to try to give me something, uh, and uh, because the my own words were were failing me and. And for me, in, the, in these kind of times, the Psalms are just great. They're 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 wonderful. They're wonderful pieces to go to, pieces of scripture to go to, because they often uh, they often there's there's often a psalm for everything. And, and here that that plea of you know how long, O oh Lord, is just a it's timeless. Unfortunately, um, you know sin has existed in our world from uh, from the very beginning. And that timelessness of that plea uh, really spoke to me. Yeah, and you see there again the psalmist expressing that real anger with God, and I think sometimes maybe we're afraid to express that anger to God, thinking that we don't want to offend Him or something. I don't know, but what what happens? Sometimes that happens to me, in my prayer life. But you can go right to Scripture to see time and time again people really wrestling with God and, and expressing some of that that real frustration, anguish, lament, really. Absolutely, and I, and I think there's a Christian that there's a great tri- Christian tradition of you know that righteous anger that uh, you know to acknowledge that I I'm not just angry at the you know the police officer who whose knee was on the neck of George Floyd, but to be honest, I was angry at God as well uh, that this this could happen, this would happen, and and there is that lament that. You know, my anger was there because I know, uh, I know the that when God, when I do feel the love and attention of God, I know what that feels like. But then I also know when uh, when instances like this come along, I know what the absence of that also feels like. And so that that lament takes on a a, a deeper meaning here of. You know how long, oh Lord? Uh, you almost have to say it out loud to get the full meaning of, of this song. 
So you, you write in that entry piece as well that as a, a 38-year-old black Jesuit priest, this the smell of sin is a familiar smell. This particular one is something that you've experienced before. Um, so what what were you reflecting on when, when you were thinking about that, this kind of trend that you've experienced? So, uh, you know, for there was something there, there was something different about uh, this particular death of George Floyd uh, for for me, uh, you know, for as I said, as a 38 year old black Jesuit priest, uh, I certainly have lived through this. You know, I would say the, the, the other death that really, really impacted me uh, was Trayvon Martin's. Um, and the uh, but the problem that I that I have had and the problem that that I think others that look like me have is uh, I take there's there's a problem with the fact that I have a whole inventory of black deaths to choose from um, to figure out which one has impacted me the most and you know some of these quite frankly uh, I'm numb to uh, I'll read the story I'll watch the video. Uh, I'll pray for the person. I'll pray for the, per- the victim. I'll pray for the perpetrator, uh, and I move on. Um, but there are some of these deaths that they do impact me more. And and to be honest, Mike, I I, I can't tell you why. Uh, as much as I, I can describe the impact of, I sat uh, at my computer screen watching this video. And I, I, I felt paralyzed uh, in a way that not many things have, have done that to me. And so when, when, when I say that it's a familiar smell, it's, it's familiar because there's so many of these, not just the deaths, but the, you know, the, the over-policing of, of, of minority communities, of, of transit systems, of of uh, seeing young black men being uh, uh, being questioned by police, even here in New York on the subway system, uh, in in the neighborhood I live in in, in Crown Heights, and it just stinks. Um, and the uh, it, it's unfortunately um, it's something that black Americans can't avoid. Uh, we we're we're. we're we're black. It's 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 fairly noticeable, and and it, it it's something that we're we can't avoid, and we we smell it every single time. It's familiar, um, and it's just uh, downright sad. Uh, it it just really saddens me because I look at these men, and you know I look at George Floyd, and I just don't see George Floyd, but I I see the I see the child that he left behind, fatherless, uh, and. Uh, that for me touches, you know, an inflection point because, you know, I educate children and, you know, the difficulty of knowing what a child has to go through when they don't have a parent uh, with them as, they, as they're growing up is just, uh, it's tragic, but it's also, you know, these things are also unavoidable. I'm Nick Repatrizone author and facilitator of the Jesuit Book Club. Our summer reading selection is The Ninth Hour by Alice McDermott, a National Book Award-winning author who tells heart-wrenching stories about Catholic families. In the novel, Annie is a young widower who is pregnant and unsure where to turn. She is taken in by the little nursing sisters of the sick poor, 
The Ninth Hour is a gripping story of women supporting each other through faith and of the bond between mothers and daughters. We'll start reading and discussing the novel on Facebook the week of June 21st. Then on Monday, July 27th, AMDG host Mike Jordan Lasky and I will have a live online conversation about the book. And here's the most exciting part. Alice McDermott herself will join us for the discussion. I'm really excited for this unique opportunity and hope you will join us. Sign up for the book club at jesuits.org slash book club. I look forward to discussing this incredible book with you. So what is the message to those those children? And again, what do you want to express to them? I saw again, and you had written about that in the, the piece as well, thinking about uh, what is the message for them versus kind of what is the message for the broader community? Again, especially in our church, which, you know, is a lot of white folks, right? Uh, so yeah, what, what are those messages what, what, you know, that you would hope to, to share? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, I struggled with that one, uh, and with that exact question of what I wanted to communicate. At first I, I thought, you know, I wanted this, my students to know that they were loved by God. And, and then I, I, I pulled back at that because I was thinking, you know, they know they're loved. They know, they know they're loved by their parents, their grandparents, their, their aunts and uncles, by the teachers here at Brooklyn Jesuit Prep, by, by myself, their principal. They know that they, they are loved. They, they don't need me in this time to tell them um, that they are loved. Um, but in a, in a, in a society um, that is so obsessed uh, with putting down uh, black Americans, that's so obsessed with race, uh, what, what I do want them to know is that uh, they can embrace who they are as being young black men, young black women. Uh, and th- who they are is a beautiful thing, and it's beautiful because God created um, and so I want them, instead of cowering and, and being paralyzed in this time, to be proud of who they are because they stand on the shoulders of giants in terms of their ancestors, of, of a beautiful people who are not just defined by oppression and racism, um, but are defined by um, uh, an ability to move past that and to surpass that. And so I want them to know that their blackness is a beautiful thing. Um, but my message is not necessarily for them because, you know, left to our own devices between my students and myself, of course we want to see racism gone. Of course we want to work towards seeing that gone. Um, my message is to uh, our brothers and sisters uh, in the church that don't look like us, our, especially our white brothers and sisters, and that is... The, we can't eliminate um, this obsession with race, this obsession with uh, racial dominance. We can't, as black Americans, eliminate that on our own. Uh, this is something that is inherently has to be done with the help of white America. And, uh, you know, there, and this is a hard thing to do because it's so ingrained into who we are as a country. It's so ingrained into who we are as a people that most of us don't realize our, our own privilege. Most of us don't, you know, will fight to our, our, our death to not admit that we are, uh, that some of us have privilege and some of us don't. And my, my message is, you know, change, uh, in order for there to be, you know, change requires change. <laughs> and, 
uh, are we satisfied with the society that we have created for ourselves uh, in, in regards to race? And I'm not just talking about the uh, you know, police relations with the black community, but are we satisfied with um, you know, healthcare access to black, to black America? Are we satisfied with the state of education in our urban areas? And if we are, then that's a whole different conversation. Uh, but if we aren't, then we have to recognize that change requires change. And it can't just be a lament that, you know, I, I want these things to happen or, oh boy, those things are bad. And we go about our normal everyday life. But in order for that change to occur, concrete things need to need to happen. And so my message to my white brothers and sisters is that uh, you have to be uh, on the forefront of what that change is. And uh, we'll certainly ally with you, but we can't do it on our, on our own. And, and we can't feel the pain of these instances on our own as well. Uh, it has to stink for you as well, because no public policy is going to work. Uh, to solve these issues. It really has to be a change of heart and mind. And until we get a change of heart and mind, we're not going to get the type of public policy that, that we need uh, to, uh, to address these issues. Now, I thought you wrote really beautifully about that. And maybe if you would go down, we had picked three um, passages for, for you to share with us uh, on the podcast. There's the, the third one kind of in that in the spirit here about, about change. Could you go ahead and, and read that one for us? Sure. Simply put, these structures will not change until white America, which means individual white Americans, gets close to black and brown people. Until you can smell the stench of sin that we smell, until the smell of that strange fruit fills your nostrils and will not let you inhale the sweet fragrances of the world, until you can see in those nine minutes a black man as brother and not withdraw from his suffering. Until you can feel pain, the pain of that knee on your own neck and suddenly find it hard to breathe in front of your computer screen. Until then, nothing will change. These, structural, these structures will not change until that body has a name and a relationship to you. And let me be clear, this is Christianity. This sharing in the experience of others is what it is to be one body in Christ. Yeah, I was really struck by that passage again, the, the way you described the really building close relationships, getting developing friendships across some of these social barriers that exist uh, and really kind of rooting that in our faith. Uh, this idea that as kind of one family created by God and really as one body of Christ is, as we believe that um, you can't not be closely bound up with people, even people, again, who don't look like you or come from a whole different place or different background. Um, so, yeah, can you just talk a little, a little bit more about kind of that, that really, I, I, was, I was reminded again of Pope Francis's uh, in cu culture of encounter, the sense again, that we, you know, the call to kind of get close to people who are really experiencing this firsthand and to not pull away from the suffering. Right. And, and like we, we get close to people that don't look like us or that don't share our experiences and background, etc. We get close to them because, quite frankly, our humanity, left to our own devices, we are cruel people to each other, um, especially to people who, who we deem as the other or we deem as the stranger. Uh, but the moment we start knocking down those walls of the stranger, uh, that there's no longer strangers in our midst, that uh, we can actually name someone uh, 
who is doesn't look like us. Uh, we can actually remember the last time we dined with someone uh, who isn't of our of our same socioeconomic bracket. Uh, the moment we do that, we do something I think very radical. Uh, it's very radical to our American way of proceeding, and it's very radical to what I think is a largely segregated. You know, uh, you know, I live in a fairly segregated city here in New York, in which we encounter people who are different from us all all the time on the subway, walking down the streets. But those are not the type of encounters I'm talking about. Those are superficial encounters in which we we're almost tolerating each other in the same spa shared space. The type of encounters that I'm talking about are the ones in which we are able to share in the hopes and dreams. Uh, and nightmares of someone who doesn't look like us. Uh, and that takes work. Uh, and that is, uh, but that work is ultimately, I think, the work of, of, of Christians, and it's the work of building up that one body in Christ. And, and that can take on many different forms. Uh, you know, that can take on, you know, uh, uh, making sure that as, you know, our churches on Sundays that we have some type of we have some type of exchange or you go to a black church or you welcome black friends into your own church or or you're making sure your own church is is, is, is somewhat diverse or that makes sure that, you know, that that friend that you have that is that is black, that you don't just use them as uh, when you get into a conversation about race and you 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 kind of you have that black friend or that black colleague. Um, that is in your back pocket you can throw out and say, well, yeah, uh, I, I get what you're talking about because I know this person, but do you really? Um, do you know their hopes and dreams? And uh, do you know their children's names? And, and it's until we get to that type of intimacy, um, that proximity with one another, when we get to that proximity, I honestly believe mike it's difficult then to hate one another it's difficult then to uh it's difficult to fire tear gas at people who we know their children that they're going home to at the end of the night it's difficult to discriminate against those people it's it's just difficult to be mean to someone that we know and pray for whom we've broken bread with and it may be naive um but i do think that's it's, it's where it starts um, it's a recognition that uh, for so many of us, uh, we live in segregated environments. Um, it's to recognize that first and then to go uh, to that change uh, and that second part, and that is uh, making sure that we have some proximity to people who don't look like us. Because it's not just good for the people that are black and brown, but quite frankly, it's also good for our white brothers and sisters as well. It's good for their soul and good for their heart uh, as well. Sure. Um, just again, when you mentioned like having the the black friend or colleague in your back pocket, you, you kind of address that theme in uh, your piece as well. And I want to talk to you about this kind of how you're often sought out for uh, for comment on on things like this. You know, well-meaning folks like myself, right? <laughs> I wrote to you yeah. and. Uh, Wanted, you wanted to get your take and uh, to hear what you had to say as a, a black Jesuit. Um, but I, again, I thought your those couple of paragraphs really, um, I think were really striking when you when you talk about this burden. Uh, so if you could go ahead and read those, we can can go from there. Sure. As a black Jesuit and a priest, I mainly live in a white world. 
which means it is my burden, responsibility, and task to talk about events like this with my white brothers and sisters. These conversations happen after every sensationalized black death. Sometimes my friends and collaborators just want to talk. Sometimes they call to listen. Usually these conversations include a desire to better understand or participate in some way. But I must admit that I often avoid these conversations. And not because these people are unimportant to me or these issues do not need to be discussed. I avoid them because they are exhausting. And they are exhausting because I have found that while white people can engage these issues at their leisure, discuss them in person or on social media and then withdraw again to their daily concern, I can't do that. The students whom I love and for whom I'm responsible can't do that. Black America cannot do that. I'm exhausted because we cannot withdraw from this painful cycle. Yeah, so again, just wondering if you are, now I will ask you to share your own reflections um, and forgive me for causing some more exhaustion, uh, but what what are your experience, have your experiences uh, been like? You do, you say there that, you know, folks are either looking to talk or to listen, to be a range. Um, what is it like to be a black Jesuit in a mostly white world? Yeah, I, my, it's a fascinating question because it is, uh, I use that word ex exhaustion on purpose because I, I think a lot of times it is, it, it is exhausting because I, what, what is it like? I would say it, it, it's like any time there has to do anything with, with blackness or black community, oftentimes, uh, you know, I'm on the, you know, speed dial of, of a lot of folks of, you know, I'll get texts from folks or, uh, you know, emails from folks and, and they, and they want me in part to, to listen to them because they've recognized, you know, an, an event that might be difficult or, or subject that might be difficult and they, they want to be able to process that. And I get it. But then there's also that point of, uh, you know, my blackness is also does not necessarily mean that I'm an expert uh, on on everything that is uh, that is black. And I think at times, for very well intentioned people, uh, they will uh, they'll look at me as being a black American, and they'll want they'll want. There's always kind of a, a want out of me, um, and that's the exhausting part. Is that there's there's constantly either the uh, uh, when something goes wrong, especially with race in this country, uh, for uh, for people to want to approach me, uh, and then when something doesn't go wrong, uh, I I wonder where are those conversations, um, and and those conversations about race tend to escape back to you know the black church. Uh, you know, I had a friend who told me, uh, this was a couple of years ago, and they were lamenting about the fact that they were finding it difficult. Uh, uh, how do I preach about race? Uh, and I forgot what the particular issue was in, in, in New York. And, and they looked at me and they said, um, you know, when these events happen, how do you, how do, you do it? And I looked at them and I said, <laughs> at St. Charles Borromeo, we talk about race all the time. Uh, and it's the privilege of you know a white parish 
uh, to not be able to talk about this, to not have this uh, be a burden, to not talk about what, what, what does it mean to raise, you know, a young black man in this society, in this, in this city, in this environment. And so I, I say exhausted because uh, it is exhausting. Uh, because I, I, I do want to be there, and I do want to share, and I do want to listen, and uh, and I probably do too much of it, and I probably should avoid more of those conversations. But uh, I also I, I also feel that a, a weird, perverse sense of a responsibility uh, to those people that are reaching out. They're reaching out because they are people of goodwill, and they're good people. Their hearts have been tugged by something, and uh, they want to enter into some deeper sense of understanding. And so I want to be there for, for them, but I also have to admit to myself that these conversations leave me. Uh, they, they, they leave me exhausted because when the conversation is over, as I said in the piece, uh, you know, my, my friends and my colleagues, my fellow judges, they can walk away, and that conversation can be done. For me, that conversation continues. Uh, because, you know, I am a black man in America. I do walk the streets of New York. Uh, and uh, it is just, it is qualitatively a different experience uh, that is lived out every day. Yeah, I mean, and I've seen uh, some of these dynamics debated on social media, right? I mean, you have, I think, you know, some well-meaning white folks who, and I've seen this in my own kind of friend group, maybe even more people who than I would usually expect to kind of comment on this publicly are putting up posts, people maybe from a more traditionalist Catholic background, again, who I wouldn't usually associate uh, some of these conversations with are seeming to be open or interested in, in having them. And so on one hand, there's the like, oh, okay, well, that's good. And those folks should be welcomed in. And on the other hand, there's though, I can you know, hear what you're saying too. And I've seen this, that you know, folks who have been really involved in this, uh, black and brown folks, especially in this work for justice thinking, it's not on me to like educate you. Like you, that's <laughs> right. not like, that's not my job. And so there, I can see those, both of those things being true at the same time. Right. I, I guess. Absolutely. And, and like and to just add to that, I would say the, the one, the conversations I find especially exhausting are the ones that take on kind of a debate in nature. I'm not interested in debating my value as a person loved uh, by God. Uh, the uh, if someone feels they they need to uh, be able to do that, I, I'm sorry for you and I'll pray for you. Uh, but I don't find it necessary for me to engage in those type of conversations. And I've gotten better over the years of, of doing that because those are those are just non-productive conversations. But they're also, I think, conversations that get to. Um, the core of, uh, of, of what's unfortunate within, uh, within Christianity in America and that uh, I think some people confused, uh, you know, white nationalism with, uh, with their belief in Jesus Christ. And, and I'm just, I'm not interested in helping them through that confusion. Uh, that's something that a higher power is going to have to help them through. Yeah. And again, I, I think as you, know, you were saying and writing in this piece and we were chatting about before we were recording that there are like folks of goodwill who are trying absolutely are showing up and again, are, are trying to learn it and trying to do things. Are there any 
uh, especially like in the Catholic context where, you know, there's been great histories written about racism in the Catholic Church and the American Catholic Church. Uh, the fact that you have, again, we often have black parishes that were founded in many cases because folks were not walk- welcome to the white parish. And so the black parish was kind of right. founded for them. The structure of sin kind of built into our our own church. Are there any, again, resources, things that for you that you, you've read or prayed with or that you think are really top-notch resources for, for people looking to go deeper? Yeah, I, I would say the first resource is more a little bit more practical, uh, Mike. It, it, it is in so many urban areas, there are uh, there are black Catholic churches uh, that I, I, I would recommend and I would encourage uh, uh, folks who, who are interested in learning more about and being in more spiritual communion with black Americans to, to search them out and go and, and not go because you're being an, an onlooker, uh, but you're going because these are your fellow Catholics and, and worship with them. Uh, and uh, I think folks, the eyes of folks will be opened up to uh, 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 in, in, a, in a good way. I would say, you know, one of my, uh, a, a, a dear friend of mine, Brian Massengale, uh, is, uh, who's a, uh, he's a diocesan priest from uh, Milwaukee who teaches at Fordham University. He's a challenging voice. I, I, I would reach out and, uh, and find some of his work. And um, I would say, don't, you're going to be challenged. <laughs> uh, and, uh, I think his is a is a is a prophetic voice that I certainly enjoy uh, 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 reading and, and interacting with. Um, but I would say, in 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 general, for me, the best resource is, is not an academic resource as much as it is you. Uh, how do you break down those walls between you and and the other person who is a stranger and and some of this might be as simple as, you know, there might be one black family in the parish. Um, and without being weird about it, try inviting them over for for a Sunday dinner. Um, uh, just as a way of two people in a parish to get to know one another. Uh, and it's I think it's as basic as that, Mike, of starting there. Um, and then moving into that deeper sense of how can I move deeper into being someone who is anti-racist? How can I move deeper into being a partner with Black America? Uh, I think it starts simple, and then it moves into uh, diving into the deep end uh, and really trying to affect change in, in all sorts of different uh, areas of our life. Well, Father Mario, I really appreciate uh, that perspective, the that call to action, some of your own reflections on uh, being a black Jesuit in this time and with your school community. So thank you for your ministry, your thoughtfulness. Thank you for uh, that piece in America, which again, really will hopefully uh, folks will, will get to uh, after hearing some of uh, some of it here today. And uh, again, yeah, I know of our, our prayers down here in D.C. Uh, for you and your, your community there and, uh, and best wishes. And as we kind of enter this uh, this summertime. I appreciate it, Mike, and, and thank you, and I, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. This issue is dear to my heart. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Dara Sump, 
Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Mike Jordan-Lasky. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. (laughs) ¶¶